If you like the person, that's great. But do you want to be in business with them? How is he trustworthy or she's trustworthy, this and that? The contract doesn't matter at the end of the day. Like it, It's important from a legal standpoint to have a contract. But if the person is not trustworthy, you should never have gone into business with them to begin with. The contract's going to be, it might protect you, it might help you, but it might also hurt you as well. Hey, investors, you are listening to the Investing to Win podcast, the show dedicated to empowering investors to achieve financial freedom and live your best life. This show is committed to offering honest conversation between investors, common sense strategies, real-time market updates, and professional guidance to achieving financial freedom. Investing doesn't have to be super hands-on or complicated. We are all about passive investments with real gain, so you have freedom of time and money. Your host is none other than Garrett Wong, who brings decades of experience in buying, renovating, and managing cash flow investment properties. Thanks for being here and get ready to invest to win. Hey there, investors. This is Garrett Wong, and I've got a special treat for you today. I was able to get my real estate lawyer away from his busy schedule to speak to us about joint venture agreements, arguably the most important piece to your next deal. Listen closely to the next 45 minutes. It could literally protect your family and your loved ones and be the difference between success and failure. Hello, audience. I'm your host, Garrett Wong of the Investing to Win podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of having Ataf Kokar from Lang Kokar Law on the show. Ataf, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Garrett. So for those of you who, uh, the audience, uh, who don't know you, why don't you uh, just start off with uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? What's your story and your background? Yeah, I'll be happy to share that. Well, it's interesting. My parents immigrated here from Africa. My brothers and I were all born in Africa uh, back in the uh, 1980s. We moved here to Winnipeg uh, in 1981. And uh, yeah, I grew up in Canada, especially Winnipeg here in South St. Patel. Okay. Uh, at a young age, uh, my mom was uh, always calling me judgy, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in Punjabi or Urdu, that, that means judge. And she always had a dream of me becoming a, a judge. And so uh, it's interesting how your younger youthful years and your parents uh, can shape what you turn into. So uh, it started from there, actually. Wow. Okay. So from there, you went into law. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what that was like here? Well, so I, you know, initially I was in finance, but I knew I wanted to do something more. Uh, as when I was growing up in Winnipeg, uh, a lot of my parents, uh, friends would tell me, my friends' parents would tell me, you're going to either be a businessman or a lawyer, uh, or maybe both. And I always I laughed at it because I love to negotiate. And, and uh, you know, I was always known as a business guy growing up uh, either uh, just doing things that were naturally something to do with business and law and negotiating. So after finance, I, I went to law school. I actually went down to, to the States. I, I wanted to leave Winnipeg because uh, I'd always lived here, but I always lived here and it was very cold. Like everybody from Winnipeg knows, uh, Winnipeg's known as Winterpeg. And so I, I decided, uh, you know, let's try the United States. My dream was to become an agent, actually, to be a sports agent. So I looked up schools in the United States, and I found that Miami had one of the best programs for sports agents. So 
when I was 24, 25, just turned 25, I moved down to Florida and I went to school, uh, law school in, in Miami, Florida. After law school, or during law school, I was awarded an internship at the United Nations, and that took me to New York. So my last semester of law school, I had the privilege of working at the UN as an intern, uh, lived in New York, absolutely fell in love with New York, and decided to write my New York State Bar in 2008. Uh, it was an interesting time, as you can probably re recall, 2008 was the financial recession. But when you're in law school, uh, you're sometimes oblivious to the world around you, even any school. Uh, you're just so ecstatic about graduating and starting your life. Uh, so uh, I wrote my New York State Bar, passed it, moved to New York in October 2008 uh, for good, and uh, until I obviously moved back to Winnipeg. But in 2008, you, you see Obama uh, get on uh, the microphone and uh, on televised uh, nas national television and say there's a financial recession and how this is going to impact us. And then you start to consider, oh, oh this is an issue. But at the time, I was working for the Attorney General uh, of New York, and that was a great privilege and honor. And it was, uh, you know, life lessons learned there. So I worked in New York for about uh, six years, uh, six, seven years, and then I moved back to Winnipeg in 2000, end of 2012, 2013. Okay. And then you've been in law ever since in Winnipeg? Yeah. So I, I started practicing in Winnipeg uh, 2013. Uh, I started with a small, uh, actually a lawyer that was about to retire, and he gave me an opportunity because it, was, it wasn't the best time to get a job in Winnipeg due to many reasons, but mostly I was coming to Winnipeg in January in 2013, but I got some interviews with Taylor McCaffrey and some of the big firms here in Winnipeg, and Taylor McCaffrey ended up hiring me after I was working with this uh, sole practitioner. He was, he was winding up his business, and actually Taylor McCaffrey was taking it over, so uh, I've been working in, in Winnipeg now for the last 10 years, and it's it's been a great 10 years. Okay, and now you have your own shop. We'll, we'll get into that in a little bit later. Great background. I mean, United Nations um, sports agent. I mean, so what, when did the dream die, or is it still a dream? Oh, you know what? The dream is still alive. Uh, but, uh, it's, you know, I, I'm just a sports, huge sports fan. Like, I don't, I, look, I'll give you, uh, I'll tell you one thing. My, my son. I named him Kobe, and I loved Kobe Bryant wow. because of that. You know, I love the name, and it, it's got a good ring, so my son's name's Kobe Kokar. And, uh, you know, it, it's just I'm a huge sports fan, and anything sports, so hockey, baseball, uh, football, you name it. It's not a soccer I don't like, or sorry, uh, a, a, a sport I don't like. It, it's one of these things where I grew up watching sports early, playing sport, or sports early. I had two older brothers, so I was – I've always been competitive. And I guess, you know, being a lawyer, being competitive is actually probably an advantage for me. Yeah, I play hockey with a few lawyers. Uh, you guys are pretty intense out there. Um, well, let's let's move on here. Um, the title of this uh, podcast is actually Joint Venture Do's and Don'ts. And that's why I wanted to have a real estate lawyer on. Um, let, let's get back to the beginning. Can you briefly explain what a joint venture is in the context of real estate and why someone might choose to engage in one? Sure. A joint venture arrangement, as I call it, I, I hate to use the word partnership because it can be seen as it can be seen as a partnership, but it shouldn't be in some ways. It is some type of partnership, but legally speaking, a joint venture arrangement or agreement is between two parties, two parties or more. It can be two entities, it can be an entity, 
or a person. It can be multiple of each, but it's for a soul, generally a soul purpose. And, and the goal is usually focused and it's usually for a certain period of time. So for example, it could be Gerd and Ataf getting into a real estate transaction for a single family home to, to rehab it, refinance it and sell it or potentially hold it. But there's a goal. There's usually an end to the, the relationship. That's what a joint venture arrangement looks like. Now, there is some joint venture agreements that can go for indefinite periods. And generally, there is a way to get out, generally speaking, and there should be an exit strategy. But we can get into that. Okay. So I guess the, the general term partnership can be a joint venture, but not from the legal term. You're, you're describing a type of relationship, basically. Yeah, so partnership should be seen such as a relationship that may not have an indefinite uh, end to it. Now, now I'm not saying that partnership cannot. Uh, a joint venture is limited generally to a scope, to a certain goal. And that's why joint ventures are used more and more today. It, it's kind of like you're getting into bed with somebody, but for a singular purpose, right? Or uh, multiple purposes, but they do have a definite and to it, uh, accomplishing a specific task can be seen as just a home that someone buys or even an apartment block that you buy. Either you want to rehab it, sell it, refinance it. It's a specific business activity generally that you're getting involved in a joint venture. Okay. Because I, I mistakenly thought that a joint venture is automatically when you're forming a corporation, more of a legal term. But again, uh, you're you're saying it's a beginning and an end uh, goal in mind, not just sort of owning shares in a corp forever and ever with with no purpose. I mean, look, can it be? It can be a joint venture in a corporation to hold the shares until you want to deal with them. But generally, a joint venture is not a partnership that goes on forever, at least in real estate. Now, now not being said that you can't have it. Have there been examples of something similar to that? I'm sure there are, but for our purposes in real estate, generally in Winnipeg and Manitoba, most people that I've been dealing with, most clients I've been dealing with, they've been using a joint venture as a vehicle to purchase a property with another partner or partners. When I say partners, again, I'd rather say joint venturers because partners can be, the term can be used, but used incorrectly. So whenever I speak to clients that are, are wanting to use a joint venture as a business vehicle to accomplish their certain task, I always ask the question, what is your intent? Why are you using a joint venture? Have you spoken to your accountant? The accountant is one of the most important persons when you're dealing in business. Why? Because financial reasons are one of the biggest decisions you make, right? So whenever you enter into any arrangement, business arrangement, you want to make, you're generally doing it to make a profit. Um, and, you know, losses do happen, but you should always talk to your accountant to say, does this vehicle or this process or whatever I'm trying to do here make sense financially? Is there a better way of accomplishing this uh, objective or goal? And so you can have a, what you're saying, a partnership in shares of a corporation for an indefinite period. I would say, you could have a joint venture like that. I believe you should have it in an agreement in writing. It should have a specific task. If it's a more general task or more specific, general goal, that's okay. I just think you need to make sure it's in writing. 
there's got to be other factors into play. You got to make sure there is there is uh, exit strategy, tax consequences, uh, rules and responsibilities. Uh, so there's a lot of things that you have to be able to accomplish, in understanding what kind of arrangement you're making. Okay. Okay. So I won't I won't use partner anymore. I'm learning here. I'm taking notes as you can see. But how important is the choice of a joint venture or <laughs> um, a JV in a joint venture? And what factors should one consider when selecting that person or group? So, you know, it's a great question. And so it's it's kind of, that's like one of the first things I actually ask my clients to do. I go, how well do you know this person? And usually they, usually there's a lot of ways to answer that. Oh, I know him from a group or I know him from this and that. Oh no, I've known him for a long time and I really trust him. And I always say, when you're getting into a business relationship with somebody, it's the same thing as when you're getting together with your girlfriend, a spouse, common law partner. Is there trust? Is there some type of trust there? Do you know the person? How long have you known the person? How well do you know the person? Is there loyalty, right? Like these are common, uh, common sense questions that are sometimes overlooked. Also, common goals. What is your goals? What's the goal in this uh, joint venture arrangement? Is there clear communication between the parties? Does this person effectively communicate with you? Are you been speaking to him for some time or she? You know, and you have to talk about contingencies and issues and details of the business arrangement. I think a lot of people get into bed with somebody, but don't put it in writing. I see it hand like. I see it too many times. And I always say to someone, I go to my client, I say, look, it's not when things are great. That's that's easy. It's when things are bad. What do you have? One party is going to remember a conversation differently than the other. And the best way to recall something is if you have it in writing. So choosing a partner is one of the most important things. You, you got to make sure that you can trust the person, loyalty, honesty, there's clear communication, all those factors. Yeah, that that's a fantastic point. You know, I being in doing what I do and obviously what you do, I see this time and time again. And I think there is a misconception, especially people who are diving into JVs uh, as a beginner, that, you know, it's down to a really rock solid contract and things like that. And, you know, being in law, um, a contract is fine to protect yourself, but you can't fall back on that when things go south. I mean, if there's arguing and, and different things, you're right. Trust, I would say, first and foremost, I don't care what's in a contract. You can't force somebody to do something. You're totally on point there. The contract is what's good on the on paper on, on the four corners of the page. The issue is really what you just addressed. It is, do you trust the person? Is the person trust? Is there trust there, number one? Honesty. Again, it's all about who are you dealing with. If you like the person, that's great. But do you want to be in business with them? That's another thing. And, you know, there's a lot of times that clients come to me and they go, oh, you know, this guy's made tons of money and he's great business. He's great at business. And I said, how do you know? And tell me how you know him. What do you think you know about this guy? How is he trustworthy or she's trustworthy, this and that? The contract doesn't matter at the end of the day. Like, it's important. From a legal standpoint, to have a contract, but if the person is not trustworthy, and you should never have gotten into business with them to begin with. The contract's going to be, it might protect you, it might help you, but it might also hurt you as well. So, yeah, you're totally on point there. 
Yeah, it's very expensive to get out of a out of a contract. So, oh, yeah. um, sure. so let's unpack contracts a little bit. What are some best practices for negotiating these joint venture agreements to ensure all parties are protected and the agreement is fair? Yeah, you know, so the number one thing I always tell my clients is, look, get legal right away. Uh, and it's not because lawyers want to, you know, make tons of money on a on a contract. It's not. It's not about that. It's really about starting the contract and the negotiations from the get-go the right way. When you start with a lawyer, a lawyer is going to tell you, here's 20 considerations. I'm just giving you 20. It could be 30. It could be 40. Here are the considerations that you need to think about. Did you think about what happens at death? Did you think about what happens at uh, taxes on sale or refinance? What happens on disability? What happens if you have a third party come forward with an offer? And is there any tag along, drag along rights? So a lot of things that you may not consider, your lawyer is going to consider and tell you, hey, look, uh, did you think about this? It's going to get you to really start thinking about what a JV agreement should look like rather than, oh, yeah, we're going to make money. Or hopefully no losses happen and we're going to be able to pay back in six months. Well, you know, in a perfect world, everybody would be using real estate, but there's a lot more moving pieces, right? And, and not only that, but you also want a lawyer to tell you, look, have you spoken to your account? Have you talked about whether this is the best vehicle to move forward with this, this type of arrangement, this type of transaction? So I think getting a lawyer right off the bat is the best. I also believe, you know, if you know the party and you know the party for a long time, Obviously, there's trust and loyalty there. You should write out some details right from the get-go. What is fair? What is fair in this arrangement? Am I bringing capital? What is the other person bringing? Is the other uh, person bringing a set of skills? As in, uh, they have contractors, maybe. They have uh, construction background. There's things that each party brings to the table. But how is the agreement fair then? Is what are the percentages? Obviously, you want to work out as much of the business terms, as you might have heard that, uh, saying between you two prior to bringing it to a lawyer. However, if you're not comfortable with that and you need to speak to your lawyer first and you know you have other advisors and, and you just want to know, does this make sense to you? Have you seen this, uh, used, this model used before? Uh, does this cut make sense to you? You could always get advice from your, your advisors to say, Yes, you know, 60% in this situation makes more sense. Or I've seen a management fee. I've seen a property management fee involved or a JC uh, fee involved. And, and this is how it usually works and what's standard in the industry. Right. So what you're describing there, Ataf, is the front end stuff, the business terms, who does what. Just like, again, uh, if you were going into a business, you're, you're selling in a restaurant or whatever it is, you're doing this, I'm doing this, I'm cooking, you're doing business development. But then what you're saying is you have to have a good advisor that's going to project into the future for the contingencies. What happens if I get sick? What happens if you get sick? What happens if one person gets divorced, separated? There's common law things that happen. Um, what happens if you're bankrupt, right? Uh, how does that affect our joint venture agreement, the asset that we're trying to protect? So it's trying to have a crystal ball and cover all those contingencies before you even start. 100%. So that's why a joint venture agreement is very important. You should have a thorough thorough agreement. I, I tell my clients all the time, if you do make an agreement and it's without a lawyer, you are taking a risk. Now, 
don't get me wrong, there is some forms, joint venture agreements that people use. Every arrangement, every joint venture deal that you do is different. There's different parties generally. There are different details. You need to use a lawyer generally to get the right drafting of a joint venture agreement. You want to have a joint venture agreement that is what the deal is. And sometimes you don't know what the deal is until you get lawyers involved because the lawyers are going to say, have you considered that this clause is going to have an effect on this clause now because you've now changed certain things. And it's important that the other party or other parties as representation too, because if they don't and you now have presented a JV agreement to a party that doesn't and they sign it, they could one day take it to court and argue that they did not get independent legal advice. Then the contract that you spent hours and thousands of dollars drafting is going to be useless, right? And so I always say to my clients, make sure that the individual or entities that you have involved have independent legal advice, have had time to review it and ask questions from their advisors, because that is going to be a fair joint venture agreement. They're going to have an idea and understanding of what they're entering into. And generally, their counsel will reach out to your counsel with comments and changes. And whether we make those changes or comments will ultimately be your decision. But at least then we know they've addressed the agreement properly. Oh, really insightful. You know, I'm thinking of when two people meet at a networking event, um, they're like, hey, let's, uh, I've got a deal here. You're bringing this, I'm bringing that. And the excitement kind of takes over. And, and you just want to move quickly. But when you're talking about a $300,000 burr that you're doing or a flip venture or a $3 million apartment block, take the time, get everybody proper advice, spend the money up front. It's a pennies compared to what you could lose in the future. You know, if I can mention something on that, everybody's excited when it's sunny and it's beautiful. And it's kind of like when you start dating somebody first, right? Everything's great. Everything's lovely. You're so excited every every moment that you're with them. You're you got that feeling. It's the same thing with you know a new deal comes your way and you're like, oh wow, this is going to be awesome, right? But you have to realize that there is so much work that needs to be done in the background to protect your interest, but also their interest, right? Because a, an agreement only can work if it's fair for both sides. If it's not fair for one side, it's not. Eventually, it's not going to work. And one party's going to complain and one party's going to be feeling like they got ripped off. So it's a good point. Did you know that there is a big difference between investing in real estate and becoming a real estate investor? People become real estate investors all the time. They get into a flip or conversion project or even dealing with long-term tenants. And they come back to us to tell us the same thing. It's like having another full-time job. I don't know about you, but that's not what we call investing. Investing in real estate is about having your money work for you in a way that is passive, consistent, most importantly, hands-off. So which one are you? Do you want to be a real estate investor or do you want to invest in real estate? For those that are open to investing in real estate and having your money work for you, listen up. Garrett Wong has spent decades helping thousands of property owners navigate the ins and outs of property investing and management through his award-winning company, Upper Edge Property Management. Their new division, Upper Edge Capital, is currently involved in multiple projects, from single-family flips to multifamily development. 
Are you looking for a healthy return on your invested capital? Or perhaps becoming a joint venture partner? If so, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to book a time to speak with Garrett and his team to see if there is a fit. Once again, the link is www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. Now, back to the show. So let's transition into advantages and risks, because that's really what we're trying to do here with this podcast to educate. What are the key advantages of joint ventures and what are some potential risks? Yeah, so that's that's generally one of the biggest things that we talk about with our clients. What's the advantage of, of joining a, a joint venture? Well, there's a lot of advantages and there is risks, pros and cons to everything, right? So one of the advantages is that you share in losses with generally the other party, depending on obviously the joint venture agreement, what percentage of ownership you have. But you are sharing that loss. You're also sharing responsibilities, generally speaking, unless, of course, the responsibility is a little bit different. The responsibility for one party could be they bring the capital. That's their responsibility. You'll hear terms such as capital party, and one party is the money party. That's the same thing as capital party. And the other party is a working party. But one of the advantages of a joint venture is also one person's bringing a set of skills that the other party doesn't. It can be somebody's finding the deal. Somebody knows the contractors, understands the business better. It could be another party has money. It, it's that. It's simple as that. And it doesn't have to always be money. It could be the other party is really good at construction, but the other party is really good at marketing. Maybe the other party is a realtor or has some real estate background in selling and marketing a property. Maybe the other party has a lot of construction sets, understands how to fix a crack basement, a crack foundation, or get permits, or has contractors on the go. So there are a set of advantages to in having a joint venture. Also, one of the advantages that we uh, kind of mentioned earlier, but didn't say it is an advantage, is again, it's a, usually a specific task. Usually, it's limited to a specific purpose, right? So there's a limited time basis for a JV generally arrangement, and you can make it as such. And doing that can limit also your liability, right? Because if something goes on forever, there is a chance for more liability to occur. So it's usually limited in scope. And that's a good thing. And, and so one of the risks or, or, or I guess costs or even a con can be you are sharing the profits, right? So maybe your profits, you, you expected a lot more and now it's a lot less, right? One of the other, the other things about uh, risks is there is liability. Sometimes you don't control it. Because if, depending on the set of skills you're bringing to the table, you're depending on somebody else's skill and knowledge and, and, and you're, you're expecting their contracts to do a good job. But if they don't do a good job, well, you're still part of the joint venture and you still share the loss. So there is that risk and, and damage. Uh, damages can occur and cons. But one of the risks is your reputation too, right? You, you're a joint venture with another party and you end up doing something terrible. Well, you know, the house ends up being a total... You know, you're building a new house and the foundation really sucks, but you're part of that group. So it's a reputational risk. One of the other risks that people uh, sometimes forget is you are bringing a set of skills that now your partner might learn, right? And unless you are signing, and, and generally you don't see it so much in smaller real estate JV agreements and arrangements, unless you're signing, you know, a confidentiality agreement, and there's other things you could sign as well, non-competition, non 
non-solicitation, exclusivity agreements. These are generally done by more public corporations. That individual or that group is going to get to know your business trade secrets, right? But in real estate, most groups, such as the groups that maybe you're involved with, Jared, or even myself is involved with, a lot of people share intel, right? So it doesn't become a business trade secret if it's known to the public. Yeah. Uh, I mean, IP, intellectual property is, I never thought about it that way as a, as a risk, but I, I mean, really, if you're getting together with somebody who has a better skill set, or maybe you have that skill set and they don't, there's nothing stopping them from partnering with somebody else after they learn everything from you. And you can't trademark that. You can't protect that. There's no NDA, non-disclosure agreement that you're going to be able to write up that's going to protect you. So it comes back to that trust factor. It comes back to the trust factor. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, relationships don't always last, right? We know that. And whatever you do learn from somebody, it does improve your process and and it probably improves their process as well. So there is a risk that this individual or individuals can take what they learn from you, make it even better, right? Not maybe reinvent the wheel, but make it better. And they can start doing their own business without you. And so that's there's pros and cons to this uh, arrangement. And it just depends on your skill set and depends on who you're, who you're getting involved with. That's why I always see a lot of joint venture agreements that are with individuals that are not so real estate savvy, but more they have a permanent job full-time job, and they're looking to make some extra money on the side through investing with people that are considered more working partners, right? People that are in the real estate investing that are looking to uh, buy, acquire, sell, hold. But the other party is generally just the money party that brings the money together, uh, wants to get a return on their investment. Okay. So you've kind of outlined some risks and mistakes there. I know that one of the mistakes obviously is just jumping in without, you know, contracts. Are there any other mistakes that we can kind of warn people about before they go into these that are pretty common? Well, so getting tax advice is very important. You know, one individual might believe that a joint venture um, agreement is the best way to deal with this specific purpose uh, or transaction. I always say get financial advice right from the get-go. Your accountant is going to tell you your entire picture. The accountant that you work with knows how much money you're making, where the sources of income come from, and is it the best use of this type of vehicle to accomplish your task. When you're doing a business transaction, you always want to know, how do I save probably the most in my taxes, right? Like whenever you're doing a deal, you're not thinking, oh, I want to pay the CRA even more money. Not to say you shouldn't, you should pay what you what you owe. But most business individuals always look at what is my tax obligation after I do something. And what you want to do is use the tax code to your benefit. So talking to a, a financial, you know, your advisor, your accountant, tax lawyer, you know, you can talk to your real estate lawyer, but your real estate lawyer is probably not going to get you the expertise that you require and is not going to have the knowledge of your accountant when it comes to your finances. So a common mistake is not talking to your accountant initially and seeing what other vehicles there are to accomplish this task in a more tax-friendly way. Now, other mistakes is obviously not knowing who you're getting into business with. Right. A common mistake is really not 
I hate to say interviewing, but interviewing the individual that you're dealing with. If you don't know the person very well, get to know each other before saying you want to get into business. I can understand most clients want, you know, they need something, the other person needs something, they think they're a good fit. But rather than jumping into business together, do some more background, do some more digging, do some more due diligence, really understand each other before getting into business. Now, I know things are moving fast and this day and age, everything's moving fast. Technology's fast. We're always busy, busy, busy. But I believe doing a little bit more due diligence in the front end is going to save you a lot of hurt in the back end. Okay. So let me summarize that because that was a lot of information. No, don't apologize. Uh, I'm trying to do this for the listeners and also for my own for my own brain. So for any joint venture, we want to make sure that you're not just taking a template off the internet, or maybe you have a, a JV agreement that you used similarly in the past, and you're just changing names and a few terms, but every situation is different. So make sure that you know what you're doing in terms of the contracts. You do your due diligence on the partner or partners or groups that you're going into business with and make sure you know what they're about and try as much as possible there. Make sure you get good tax advice from your accountants. Make sure that your specific situation and the situations of your, your potential JV partners are such that you know the structure of the agreement and the vehicle, the corp, whatever it's going to be, however you're holding the asset is proper, and then go to your lawyer to get everything drawn up. Make sure that the other person and parties have independent legal advice so that whatever you're going into and signing can stand the test of time. Does that about sum it up? That's perfect. Yeah. You know, all of that can go work together, right? Like all those things can happen almost at the same time and generally do. Your accountant's going to speak to probably your lawyer at some point. And if he's not, then you may want to consider that. I always say who's to all my clients, I say, who's your account? Generally, I know a lot of my clients' accounts because they don't usually repeat clients. But I always want to know who your account is, what their advice would be. How do we structure your share structure in this corporation? Is it going to be the same as other ones? So you always want to have those communication with your advisors and everyone being on the same page. But you did outline it really well here. Okay. Well, thank you. Hope everybody was taking notes there. Let's talk about disputes um, because that's the ugly side, right? I've been involved in some some pretty pretty nasty ones over the last 20, 30 years. And, you know, a lot of it, to be honest, has to do with because I had handshake agreements, um, thought that everything was going to be okay. But how are disputes typically handled within joint ventures? Maybe speak to us a little bit about, I don't know, mediation, arbitration, litigation processes. What does that look like? Yeah, so you, you did hit, all, hit three big ones, right? Generally, the party is going to look to the agreement. And the agreement is going to set forth a way to deal with dispute. And it's called dispute mechanisms, right? Or there should be a process to find in the agreement, number one, how you're going to deal with the dispute. It's arbitration or mediation or litigation. Obviously, there's difference in each. A mediator generally helps parties resolve a dispute. A mediator doesn't decide it generally, but helps you get to a, a final uh, settlement. A arbitrator generally will act like a court, like a judge that's going to settle a dispute. And generally, arbitration is binding on both parties. So you can't go back and now go to litigation. Now, litigation is you go to court, right? And generally, you're going to court. It's not a small court claim. And it can be. But generally, you're going to the Court of Queen's Bench, or actually it's the King's Bench now. 
And it's going to be very costly and time consuming. And when I say costly, depending on the size of the dispute and depending on how many factors there are, the minimum to get to court, in my understanding from litigators that I speak to, it's minimum five dollars to $10,000 just to get to court. And then for every hearing and every deposition and every pretrial order or anything that a litigator must do, it ends up being very costly. We're talking about tens and tens of thousands of dollars and sometimes into the hundreds. And if you're in bigger cities, obviously the bigger disputes could be in the millions. Now, arbitration is generally a less costly process. Generally, you see that more in joint ventures because parties don't want to go to litigation. They want to try to go to arbitration or or at times you can have mediation in there as well as a mechanism. You know, it just depends on the parties. I think mostly you're going to see arbitration because there's a way of, uh, you know, an arbitrator to act as a judge and, and provide a binding decision and both parties have to live with it. Yeah, I've, like I said, I've been involved in some nasty ones and the costs you're speaking about there, I think, you know, you're not sugarcoating it. It's um, the last one uh, was a builder's lien uh, with a partnership in a corp that really we didn't have any agreements done. And we settled out. Um, and I think our legal costs were in like around 30, 35K plus the settlement. So like, I mean, that was just to take us through to discovery. We didn't even go to court. I, I can't even imagine. Like uh, you could just see it. I think the settlement was less than the legal fees, right? I, I mean, it's yeah. crazy. And I'm not surprised, Garrett, hearing that from you because litigators, to prepare for court, they always have to be prepared to go to court. It doesn't matter what happens, even though you settled they still have to be prepared, right? So you don't want a litigator going into court or a court action a week or two away and not even being prepared. That's the problem with litigation is it can be very costly. Yeah, well, it takes hours and hours to prepare and then hours and hours to remind yourself. I mean, I can't even imagine to get familiar that morning of to give your best game for your client. Let's Let's talk about exit strategies. You, you touched on it a little bit in terms of, you know, your JV agreement, but what should the participants in a joint venture plan for in terms of exit strategies? Yeah, you know, exit strategy is like one of the most important things in a joint venture agreement. You always want to know what the goal is, of course, but you always want to know what is the exit? What is the exit strategy? What How do we deal with this transaction, this property? Uh, what's going to happen at the end, right? And so exit strategy is different for every individual and every client. But the thing with the JV agreement, which which we touched upon earlier, is you have to think about other things that happen in life. Death happens. Disability happens, right? Divorce happens. There ends up, somebody ends up going bankrupt. How is that being dealt with in, in the agreement? Is there an exit strategy for that? And generally there is. Now, you know, the JV agreement will say, well, what happens upon somebody's death? What happens with the executive of the state? Who takes over? What happens to the interest? Same thing for those other ones. Now, on a positive exit strategy, being a positive exit strategy would be one where the goal is actually reached. How does how does the uh, joint venture parties exit and now terminate the agreement? Well, is it on a sale? Is it on a refinance and being paid out? There's different ways of structuring every JV agreement, but that should be clearly defined from the from the beginning because the intent of the parties is very important. What is your intent in this joint venture arrangement? What is it one party wants more than the other? Some one party sometimes just wants a return on investment 
And maybe that other party wants to hold on to the asset after a refinance. It doesn't matter what it is. It just needs to be set forth. Maybe they're going to both hold on to it for another three to five years to see how the market's going. Maybe the market in three to five years is much better. Maybe they get a valuation that meets their criteria and they want to sell it at that time. But there's different mechanisms of, of an exit strategy. You can have a triggering event. Maybe the value of the property goes down 10% and there's an exit strategy if it dips to a certain number. Maybe there's an exit strategy if if the market's on fire like it has been for the last couple of years and, and you want to sell it and that's a triggering event. So there's a lot of ways to have an exit strategy in place. You know, you said that word, which uh, intrigues me, valuation, because throughout what, however long your JV agreement is, there's going to be a point during an exit strategy, either accidentally or maybe you've reached the end where valuation comes in. So let's, let's say that there's a dispute or somebody gets sick and they have to leave, but they need to get value for their share, their whatever that percentage is, what typically do you use to value for valuation and that everybody can agree? So there, there are mechanisms in a joint venture agreement to talk about what happens on, you know, someone being dis- disabled. Now, in, in typical and in general transactions or agreements that I've seen or drafted, there's not somebody that gets knocked uh, percentage-wise uh, reduced in that situation. Disability is something that happens, unfortunately, uh, due to you know uh, factors outside of their control. Uh, there are some things that are sometimes in your control, such as, well, if you go bankrupt because you now have a gambling debt or you have a lot of creditors, well, that's probably in your control. And so the, your interest and percentage of interest coming back can be reduced in, in a properly drafted JV agreement. But when you're talking about reducing um, a share of an individual, generally there's a mechanism in the agreement that says, okay, well, due to death, this, that, what happens? Okay, so something happens as in on death, what happens with your interest? Well, it probably goes to your state, but then you get paid out. Now, there can be a mechani- mechanism to pay them out right away. There might be an insurance policy in place. There may not be. There might be a time schedule or a timeline on when to pay back the interest or does the remaining joint venture party have an interest in buying out the shares from the estate? But when it comes to, I think, I don't know if I answered your question correctly there. Well, there's two sides of valuation, right? So you you touched on the, the legal side in terms of value of the shares, percentages. What about the value of the asset, the real estate itself? So, And that's where we want to go. Thank you for that. So I would get a business valuator. I would get somebody in real estate, either an appraisal by a certified appraisal uh, appraiser that's that gives you an appraisal that is actually what is the actual value of the property as a fair market value as of today, right? So depending on the day that you want this, so today's May twenty third. If you both parties agree, look, uh, you know we're not, or this is not working out. We want an appraisal done. Let's get a certified appraisal, right? You can also get. Not to say this is not a useful way of doing it, but a real estate agent or two or three to give you some market valuation. Now, that's more of a opinion of value. Uh, if you if you want to get an appraisal done, maybe you want one or two. Maybe you don't like the appraisal. Maybe you get a third. I generally think that you get a certified appraisal done on the, of the property, the asset, and that's a good starting point. Now, you could also put the, put the property up on the market with an agent 
and say, you know, is it 259, 249? Put it on the market. See what someone's willing to give you, right? Then you maybe get what a true purchaser, fair market value purchaser is going to buy it right now. So, you know, can appraisals be subjective? Sure, they can be. But generally, you're going to get a scope of what it is. You can also look at your property assessment from the city of Winnipeg, and they'll assess that at, you know, is it 249, 250, is it 260? Generally, that's a decent scope. I'm not saying it's always the best, but that gives you a good understanding of where your asset's valued at. Yeah, I think, um, is it fair to say, because I've done this in some of my shareholders agreements in the past, that if all parties kind of say, okay, if we ever split, if there's ever an event, let's decide right now who's doing the valuation. Let's put it in writing. It'll be whatever appraisal group, or maybe we will get three opinions of value from three realtors, and you put that right in there. So I guess my point is, if everybody agrees up front, then it's a lot easier to agree on that valuation later instead of having to dispute, put it on the market, and just try to decide on the fly what it's worth. Yeah, you know, having everything worked out in the beginning is always better, of course. It doesn't always happen, but having a mechanism in place when you want to know what the valuation of your asset is very important. In every JV agreement I've drafted, I'll say almost everyone, of them, I always say, make sure you have a mechanism for when there's a dispute, death, disability, exit strategy, whatever it may be, that you can figure out what the value of the asset is and and whatever group you want. So if you have a group that you believe is better, you know, I'm not just for lack of better terms here, like Cushman Wakefield, right? Like everybody knows them, Stevenson, whoever you want to use, you can use anybody, right? There's a lot more appraisers out there. But having a group that you guys know is a credible appraiser uh, ahead of time agreed to makes a huge difference. Yeah. Great. Okay. So we've got my summary. If people want to roll back for that about best way to set things up and then, yeah, make sure there's valuation. I think that's a incredibly important point to include in any JV agreement. You know, I'm looking at the timer here that I have on the podcast. I cannot believe 45 minutes have already flown by. Feel like we could keep going on and on, but uh, maybe there'll have to be a part two for this. So, I have one question that I ask every guest. You are prepared for, or you should be, anyways, if you did your homework. So, uh, here we go. So, this is the Investing to Win podcast. How do you define success, and what does winning look like for you? It's a great question, Garrett. And uh, to me, success is getting and being stronger and better every day. And it's not just in one way. And I mean this in every part of my life. So whether it's with my family, my work, uh, working out, I physically, mentally, and spiritually want to be better each and every day. I strive to be the best I can be. I, I'm not competing against Garrett Wong. I'm not comp- uh, competing against any other athlete. I'm, I'm not competing against any other lawyer. I'm actually just competing with myself. And if I'm better each and every day and I'm striving to get better and my policies are better, my procedures are better each and every day, and we're fine-tuning it every every time I think they could be better, that's success to me. Uh, getting up with a positive attitude, sharing uh, what I know with my kids and making sure that they are ready to win the day is very important to me. What does winning look like to me? It's, you know, in life, it's about being successful. And, and success doesn't always is not driven by money. Uh, now, does 
being successful sometimes lead to money. Sure, I'm sure it does. But it's just being successful at your goals and what you want to accomplish each and every day, right? And, and, and you know, winning to me is sometimes the s- smallest things. Uh, living in the moment with my kids. This weekend, I was able to take some time not to look at my computer, not to look at my, my phone, and just being with them in the present uh, of them, in, in their presence in that moment, right? Just the small things. I was able to take them to the park, play play uh, football with them and, and tag and just do those things where, to me, that's winning because I'm on earth enjoying my time with my kids and having a busy practice, being a husband, father, a brother, son, there's a lot on you, a lot of pressures, right? And, and we all go through it, but sometimes we're, we're running through life when we're, we got to just stop and try to, like they say, uh, smell the roses. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm trying to do that better and more and more. And uh, I'm still, still striving to get better at that. I love it. Be the best version of yourself. I know that a couple podcasts ago, I I told the uh, story of my 2022 and my two life scares and how that's that shaped me. So uh, good, good on you. The good on you that you're you know you're prioritizing your family. You're not just working and and you have balance. Appreciate that, Gary. Yeah, I do my best to do that. Okay. Well, that's a great place to stop. Um, like I'd love to thank you. Uh, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show talking about this, uh, you know, joint ventures. I think it's uh, a lot of value that our listeners are going to get. And uh, yeah, we'll have, we'll have to have you on the show again. Thank you very much. Well, thanks, Garrett. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today on the Investing to Win podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe on whichever platform you are listening to this on. If this episode made you think of another investor, take a screenshot and share this podcast episode with them. Investing to Win is not only about helping you to win more, but WIN actually stands for Wise Investors Network. It's where we help our investors build a hands-off portfolio and have passive investments work for them. To see how you can potentially partner with us, go to www.upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest to learn more. Once again, the link is www upperedgecapital.com forward slash invest. All links can be found in the description below. Until next time.